0: It's my privilege to uplift all of our spirits with these encouraging words (laughs) from the prophet Jeremiah. Be ready. It It is deep water, but it's God's word, and there's something in it for us. Let me read this for us. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He's not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob, In his wrath, he's broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He's brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He's withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He's burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he's killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He's poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He's swallowed up Israel. He's swallowed up all its palaces. He's laid its ruins in strong, He's laid in ruins its strongholds. He's multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He's delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not... Restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He's ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They've thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Lord, thank you for the honesty of this passage. Thank you for the the truth in it, though it's painful to read and painful to hear and and yet you have things in it for us today. We pray that you'd bless your servant Anthony, that you'd open our ears, make us fertile ground for the work of your spirit through your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Mike. So if you're uh, new to Union, uh, welcome. Um, it's not These kinds of texts aren't the ones we're always going through, but uh, if it's, this is your first time, you're... Uh, you're welcome. We're you're in for a bit of a, a doozy of a of a of a of a text. This text is is interesting because we the perspective we get is the, a, a city that has been laid siege by Babylon and and Babylon has they, they have surrounded the city and they've not let aid or resources into the city to where the people of God are suffering in and, in and, and, in devastating ways. In fact, I had mercy on, on Mike because I, I made sure that he didn't have to read certain passages that are really difficult to stomach when you approach them. But chapter 2, uh, in reality, is, is a, a really broken and really bad broken record. One where, where grief is gruesomely on repeat. It's just over and over and over and over again. It's a really sad song. Hence the name Lamentations. It's a place where we come to cry. It's a place we come to grieve. It's a place where we come to understand the pain that is so common to man. Old Testament scholar Leslie Allen is perhaps a little more helpful in helping us understand our approach into chapter two. He explains, the three goals of the initial poem articulating grief helping the community take responsibility for their shortcomings by means of spiritual interpretation, and helping members turn in prayer back to God as the only one who could take them beyond their catastrophe are repeated in the second poem, but at a more emotive and strident level in order to drive these messages home and encourage the community to turn to God in their own prayer. In other words, their healing is going to take place around the repeated remembrance of how and why they have arrived at such a place of, of suffering. This is what some might call some really ancient therapy. In AA, what they're doing is they're doing something similar to what you see in AA. They are making uh, a searching and fearless moral inventory of themselves. So like I said, a real ancient <coughs> therapy. One of the big lessons that we'll learn in Lamentations is how to navigate the suffering for which we are responsible for and find ourselves in, hence the grief articulated at a more emotive and strident level. That's how we process the pain that we have inflicted upon ourselves or the proverbial shooting of oneself in the foot or the the shipwreck that the Christian can sometimes encounter. Furthermore, on a bit of a side note, I've also found the process of repeated remembrance as a helpful mechanism for those who are suffering and navigating various states of grief. Grief and suffering is not always a result of someone shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, grief is not always a result of shipwreck, and that distinction needs to be made clear and up front in the very beginning, because that could, if that's not made clear in the beginning, then the contents of lamentations can be really crushing. But like I said, uh, sometimes it is helpful to repeat and, and, and use this mechanism of emotive and strident repetition as you grieve to process your pain. Uh, perhaps it's... Uh, time, a different time for a personal conversation, but if you're interested, any of you, if you're interested, and I put this on the table before, but I'll continue to do so, if any of you ever want to talk to me or my wife about what it has been like to grieve the loss of our son and how we've processed that through repetition, going through the gory details on a pretty consistent basis, I'd like to talk to you about that and and, and explain to you how there's grace and mercy in that, even though it may be very painful. So if, 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 if any of you are interested in, in what that process looks like, I'm here, my wife's here. We would love to talk to you about that and talk to you about how, it, how one processes that, okay? But again, back to uh, the text, because I'm here to teach you really what is going on in Lamentations chapter two. And in Lamentation two, the text tells us that the cry of the collective, it continues. And like Leslie says, it's uh, more strident, more emotive. Like I said, I had mercy on Mike. There's certain things in the text that we're going to avoid today, just so we're not um, totally freaking out this morning. Um, but, but I would encourage you to read it all in its context. But I want to give you a brief summary of what we're seeing in the text. It's very similar to chapter 1 why we're discussing the, the repetition, the broken record. But according to the text, the city that was, according to verse 15, was called the, the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth, It has been turned upside down. Uh, the people of God, they've been conquered to such a degree, such an extent, that they're reduced, as verse 10 tells us, to sitting in silence and sackcloth, heads bowed to the ground. In a really gnarly picture we see babies and infants who once frolicked in the streets now laying there lifeless. And like I said I don't have the stomach to say certain things that the text repeats in the book. But what we know is that the people of God are completely defeated. They're defeated on a level that Israel has never experienced in their entire history. So up until this point, they've, they've had tension. They've had wars. There's been you know, escalations with, with people, but they've never been defeated on this kind of level. Verse 13, where, we ended, where Mike ended his reading, says, What can I say to you? To, com- to what uh, can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? They're facing um, a crisis like no other. They're going through grief and a, and, and a pain. As we mentioned last week, their, their, their word for how is literally a shriek and a cry for God, asking where are you in the midst of all of this? Now, ruminating on this for the past week has left me exhausted. If you know a little thing, know something about me, when I prepare a sermon, it always leaves me exhausted for one reason or another. But for this week, the reason it's left me exhausted is that the pain that people go through is wearying. And I think that's kind of the first um, gift or piece of wisdom that lamentations imparts upon us. Is that we're really paying attention to people's pain? We should be processing it personally a little bit, as well. In fact, when we look, when we turn to chapter three, you th- you see Jeremiah doing this very thing. Even though this, uh, even though the 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 fallout from all this covenant breaking and the people of God is uh, is not response, you know, is not falling upon Jeremiah. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is not responsible for it. Even though he's not responsible, he still takes personal uh, account of it. He still includes himself within the people of God even though he has not sin or broken covenant. And I think real lament uh, is, is personal. We'll talk about that more next week. But we know the people of God are devastated. They're on the receiving end of a, of a terrible blow. My question to you is How do you feel about the one who delivered the blow? I don't know, did you catch that in the reading uh, of the text? Do you realize who has delivered this devastating blow on the people of God? Well, in some of your Bibles, the ominous heading over chapter 2 reads, The Lord has destroyed without pity. This is taken from uh, verse 21. Where it reads, In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. I don't know how I don't know how that makes you feel, but that's the fact of what's on pages. God, what we read is is a furious with his people. In, in fact, before we have gone 10 verses into the chapter, there are, are over 40 descriptions of God's judgment and anger towards his people. And I know the historical context is that, sure, the Babylonians were the people who had, brought, who had brought havoc into Jerusalem, but God, and we must not make a mistake here, God here in the text is the one who is taking credit for the suffering of, of his people. He's the one who has delivered the, the blow. As I already mentioned last week, sin does in fact have a shelf life. And, and sin does go sour when you least expect it. And, in Lamentations tells us this very thing. It's a, it's a, it's a bitter thing. And it's important. It's important because I think I don't know how, I don't know how you, all of you feel as we approach that kind of pain, and we examine that sort of suffering. I don't know, how do you feel about God being on the end of this? How does that, what does that do to your mind and your heart? I would, I, I, what I would like to, if I could, but we can't do that, I'd like to sit down and talk to, like, get a b- big circle going and just hear what's going on in your heads right now. But I don't get to do that, so I guess I'll move on. But... One of the things you may be wondering is why and how, and I thought God is love, et cetera, et cetera. Well, to remember, it's important to remember that God had talked to his people about a punishment that was a possible reality if they had rebelled against him. In fact, it, this truth is touched on a little bit in verse 17 of the chapter. He says, the Lord has done what he, uh, what he purposed he has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over uh, you and exalted the might of your foes. A little more historical context, you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is, this is the place where we get the original warning from God for his people to, to remain faithful to their covenant. In, in, De- in Deuteronomy 28, it, it actually begins with God telling the people of Israel what kind of blessings they will receive if they stay faithful to the covenant before them. But also what it contains is what's going to happen to the people of God if, they, if they're unfaithful to their uh, covenant. I'll, I'll put up verses 15 through 20 um, so you can get a snippet of what, what God said to his people. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Curse shall, be, shall you be in the city, and curse shall you be in the field. Curse shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock." Curse shall be you when you come in, and curse shall be you when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. I know you're saying, why did I come to church today? (laughs) In case you're wondering, that, that warning from God... To the, to, the, to the people of God and is, it goes on for another 47 chapters. God is detailed about what will happen if they break the covenant with God, if, they, if they're not walking in obedience and in harmony with God. And what this tells us, what Lamentations tells us, what, this, what the people of God tell us within the Old Testament is that shipwreck is really a possibility for the people of God. The weird mystery of Scripture is that God is sovereign over everything and then man has a responsibility. Humanity, humanity has a responsibility. And, and, and what the story tells us over and over again is that we as individual believers, we have a choice whether we're going to be faithful and walk in covenant. And that it is possible to shoot oneself in the foot. It's possible to shipwreck our lives. Lamentations chapter 2 is such a terrible, tragic picture of what that looks like. And again, as I mentioned, it's the people of, uh, of God articulating their, their grief. But Lamentation chapter 2 really is a sad survey and a look at the ramifications of Israel's disobedience and what it looks like for God to be angry. I know that might make us uncomfortable. I mean, I know some people may not even like that idea, but God does in fact get angry. Or does he? Do we understand what it means for God to be angry? And as uh, Sung Chan Ra, a commentator that we quoted last week, suggests, what would happen to our faith if we believed that God reigns sovereign over both our celebration and our suffering? So number one, some people want to refuse the idea of an angry God. It's unsettling. And in fact, when you read some of the words of lamentation and you hear that God is is punishing his people, it's unsettling. So what does it mean, does God get angry, and what what does it look like when he's angry? Well, I'm going to quote Walter Kaiser, our Old Testament scholar um, and former president of Gordon-Comwell Theological Seminary. It's a long thought and idea, but I'm going to beg you to hang with me, okay? Can you hang with me? Um, Because it's really fascinating to know how this idea around the anger of God originated. And he he says this, he says, The whole question of divine anger, the ira Dei, has been the subject of some sharp debate in the history of the church. It became known as the question of divine possibility, the quality or aptness in God to feel, suffer, or be angry, Or impassibility the denial of those qualities under the strong advocacy of Gnosticism a philosophy that combined Greek and oriental ideas with Christian teaching and professed access to truth that was a mystery to outsiders a doctrine of God emerged that took the strongest exception to any claim that God could feel or suffer anything or that he could be angry so this unsettling thought, this feeling of God being angry in the people of, of God's mind and heart has been plaguing the church in it from, from ancient times. It's a question that's been asked uh, for, for many, many years. Actually, this conflict produced all sorts of people against this idea that God could be angry, and, and, in, and it produced, this conflict itself produced a man by the name of Marcion, a man Kaiser says, he believed that God of the Old Testament was a demiurge. What is a demiurge? Well, good thing he tells us, right? A God support, subordinate to the supreme God and responsible for the creation of evil, whose involvement in war, suffering, and judgments disqualified him from being the God of grace and goodness, whom Marcion found in most of Paul's epistles in the New Testament. I don't know if you've ever heard people... Uh, look at Scripture this way, but that's often how I've heard people look at Scripture. Um, the Old Testament God is completely and entirely different from the God of the New Testament and that they are at odds. This is what the man Marcion, who's most famous for this confusion, he is the one responsible for, for bringing this into academia. And it's a natural response to people who are uncomfortable with God being angry. This is a view uh, of God mistakenly taken by many, and it's not a view revealed in Scripture. But thankfully, in, in 144 AD, Marcion and this dirty doctrine was expelled, expelled from the church. And However, a clear rebuttal to the controversy wouldn't arrive until the last half of the third century through a man named Lactantius. So actually, there was confusion around this anger, Anger in, uh, in God for quite some time until uh, Lactantius spoke up. Kaiser says, I hope you enjoy this because I like this stuff. Uh, Lactantius wrote his De Ira Day. He says, the anger of God, or the anger of God. For him, passions or emotions were not in themselves evil, but avenues of virtue and goodness when kept under control. Furthermore, God must be moved to anger when he sees sin and wickedness in men and women, just as he is moved to love them when they please him. In Lactantius' own words, the argument goes like this: it says he, he, says he who loves the good by the very fact hates the evil, and he who does not hate the uh, who, and who and he who does not hate the evil does not love the good, because the love of goodness issues directly out of the hatred of evil, and the hatred of evil issues directly out of the love of goodness. No one can love life without abhorring death. And no one can have an appetency for light without an antipathy to darkness. When you consider the holiness of God, that no evil, no no darkness dwells within him, this idea begins to make sense and take shape. Uh, Lactantius rightly suggests that not only does God feel anger, he does feel anger, but number two, He also gives us a clear definition of what it means when he is angry, and this definition is extremely helpful, because the mistake that we often make when we talk about the anger of God is that we we apply human traits to his anger. Um, How many of you heard someone say, uh, well, oh, you really blew it, and God's going to drop a lightning bolt on you right now? How many of you said that, right? Oh, oh no, step back. You're going to get zapped, right? You know, often that's from our very finite understanding of how God operates in the world. And thank God he does not operate the way we do. Or there'd be all sorts of scorched earth and scorched people all over planet earth, right? So first and foremost, just thinking from a logical perspective, Obviously, when God is angry, it's totally different than when we are angry. Uh, Kaiser, he continues, it's, oh, oh and, I, and I wrote this, it's not like when, you're, when your mom is chasing you with a chancla because you, you, you really messed something up, right? Or, or when your dad's just going to town with the belt. I mean, I've, I've had that uh, a, a few times. And Anyway, that's a little bit of my childhood. But... Um, Kaiser says this, he says, Our problem with anger is that we define it as Aristotle did. The desire for retaliation or desire to get even and get revenge for a slight or real harm done to us. With anger goes the idea of a brief madness and an uneasiness or discomposure of the mind upon the receipt of an injury. With a present purpose for revenge. But Lactantius defined anger as a motion of the soul rousing itself to curb sin. So we are a lot like uh, uh, the county Monte Cristo, right? Somebody does us dirty, and we are, we are planning vengeance. We are planning the death of all enemies. And this is not how God operates. It's not the way he looks at the world. It's not the way he sees creation when he is uh, angry. It's completely different than ours. And hopefully that settles your heart a little bit. It's, he's not like, not like us. You see, uh, God is roused within himself to, to deal with sin, to curb sin, and I don't know about you, but that's the kind of God that I want to follow. I don't want a, a God who has just kind of set the world uh, in motion, and then it's all a total free fall from there, and God is not just in how he executes judgment upon sin, All of us would agree that so much evil is done on planet Earth. What Lamentation tells us is that God will, in fact, intervene in evil. He will do justice when he decides. And he will do it righteously and perfectly from a place of holiness. And if that's true, then we can approach the pain and the problems of of life with a little more peace. How many of you are at peace with letting God take care of those big problems? Or, are you unnerved by those problems? Are you busy trying to solve those problems? Uh, engage in the collective questions around answering those problems and the frustration that ensues there, because I love, I love hanging out with the dudes uh, at uh, the barbershop or, you know. Having, having a drink or whatever, I, I love talking to the guys, but when we, when we depart, we have not collectively solved anything, just a lot of probably grumpy behavior, um, if we're being honest. But what Lamentation chapter 2 is telling us is that God uh, does get angry, but his, ang- his anger is not arbitrary, and it's not without design, and it's certainly not revenge, it's not vengeance, God's indignation is not petty uh, like us humans. No, his displeasure, it actually, it actually comes from a place of love. Because the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are very much the same. As sad as the scene of Lamentations 2 is, it is good because God in his wrath is intervening on behalf of his people. Their suffering is not without reason, telling us that there is someone behind it all who loves them very much and that he's willing to intervene and even to do so violently if necessary. You guys know what that looks like when you love someone so much, especially if you've had children and they're about to, if they're little and they're about to do something that would be destructive to their body. Um, they may not feel love in their heart as you're ripping them from the cliff or from the finger going into the electrical outlet. But it is love that is preventing that child from doing something dangerous. And if we can understand God's love from that perspective, ripping and even, even teaching his children a terrible lesson is, is a good gift The New Testament, New Testament says that the Lord uh, chastens whom He loves, or He or He gives the papaws to who He loves. And I used to tell my parents, "I don't feel love when you're spanking me." And here's the, here's the reality of my childhood. Sometimes my parents were they were they were at peace; they were calm. They were delivering discipline from a place of love so I could learn and grow and mature as a, as a human. And that's when they were in their right mind. But sometimes they were just ticked that I was misbehaving. And they were not reflecting any goodness to me or discipline or, or any kind of uh, healthy process in, in the way to discipline me. They sometimes lost it. And that's when the chancla was thrown across the the room or my dad's belt came off and went went to town with a fury. It's important to remember as you read Lamentations to make the distinctions of what is actually happening here. There's a grace here because God could have completely obliterated his people for breaking their covenant. He had told them in Deuteronomy, he'd warn them what would, it, it would look like in their life. What kind of cursing would come upon them if they were disobedient? And so God is consistent. And it's the consistency of God that is super helpful for here, for, for us here as we examine chapter 2. God loving his people to the degree that he'll intervene violently if necessary. And what I'm what I'm inviting you to do this morning, and I'm hoping you can do, is you can couple uh, Lamentations chapter 2 with the gospel. Because if you can't read Lamentations chapter 2 without understanding the gospel, then, then it's just miserable. This whole, this whole thing, the whole chapter is miserable. But what Lamentation chapter 2 can do for us is it can remind us of the message of the cross. God's intervening Violently when necessary. Because the gospel, in a nutshell, it reminds us that God's anger was stored up to stamp out sinful humanity. That's what the, that's what the cross is. A, a, there is a righteous requirement for sin. There's a, uh, God has to do something about injustice. And what, why the go- gospel is so beautiful, store of, uh, instead of stamping out sinful humanity... In the, in the most shocking turn of events, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he steps in and absorbs the blow that was meant for us. So when we think about the gospel, we're all for violence now, right? We, we say, yes, kill the Messiah because without his, the shedding of his blood, there could not be a remission of, of our sins. And so, isn't it interesting? It's just perspective, right? Because there, when Jesus is dying, when God is dying on the cross, we say, thumbs up, right on, keep going, because it's resulting in rescue for us. And then when we see God's people and lamentations going through the worst time of their life, we say, I don't know how I feel about that. It makes me very uncomfortable. But you see how the whole story has to come together and and how the, the gospel itself is the lens in which we use to read all these ancient texts. Because if we don't, it's just weird to begin with and violent and terrible without any hope. But if we see it through the lens of the gospel, we know that there is not only hope, but there's a God who loves his people ferociously and and beautifully and consistently on every single page of scripture. The God of the Old Testament and New Testament is what we see is very consistent. He's always bringing punishment for disobedience. Yet with a new wrinkle and choice in the gospel, either we take the plunge and we pay the penalty for our own sin, or in faith we put our trust in the Son of God who soaks all of it up on the cross. And that's what the Bible is really doing for us when we read it. It's asking us, who, who is going to execute justice? What is that going to look like for our life? Is Jesus going to cover us with his sacrifice on the cross? Or are we going to go out into the fray and stand on our own works and see what happens? I don't know. That's a much more terrifying thought than anything else, if you're asking me and you're reading scripture. And therefore, the right kind of lament is good because it personalizes suffering and it says to us that there's someone who is always going to intervene and like I said, even violently if necessary. Like an ancient AA meeting, Israel must remember And repeat the details of the rebellion. And surrender to the God who intervenes on their behalf. They're a God who is going to take them through rather than around their grief. And this is one thing Lamentations really teaches us. And this is what what going through grief in general teaches us. If we're going to uh, go from heartbreak to hope, you can't go around grief. You have to go through it. You have to enter into the fray. And I know as, I know as, as Americans, we don't like that. We, we, we want to say there's got to be something I can buy. There's got to be some sort of life hack that I can implement to avoid pain and suffering in the world. But that just doesn't exist. So going with God through the grief is what we are learning in Lamentations. It might be painful, but it, is, it, has, it has a purpose. So what can we take from the text this morning? Well, well, number one, I think what we've covered pretty thoroughly, who's going to be on the receiving end of the wrath of God? Um, is it us or Jesus? Those are, those are the options that Scripture gives us. Who's going to be on the, end of the, wrath, the receiving end of the wrath of God? Is Jesus going to take that for us and cover us and absorb the penalty of, of, of sin for us? Or are we gonna stand on our own and go out into the void and the fray and try and let our, our works speak for themselves? Number two, what we also are reminded here is if we're like the children of Israel, if we're one of God's disobedient children and we're practicing disobedience, all I would say for all of us here is we, you gotta stop. Because sin does have a shelf life, it does sour, when you least expect it. And, and here's, here's what I've learned at, at year 45. Shipwreck stinks. Shipwreck is terrible. It is so sad watching God's children in the, in the aftermath of their mess. I've, I, I've hated the times I've had to sit in my mess and take a, an honest assessment of all of that. It's tough. And so the the prophetic warning of lamentation is if you're on a trajectory of of breaking covenant, stop, because sin stinks. Shipwreck is awful. And number three, may I remind you from earlier, if you're suffering and you've been obedient to God, um, let me just tell you this, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. If you're suffering and been obedient... Remember that God is sovereign sovereign over your suffering he 's still good He's with you and for you and here's another gospel perspective to take into that, to that into that moment. remember that Jesus knows Jesus knows exactly what we 're talking about here, and remember that his obedience to the Father placed him on a path to the cross so the Yes, I know it's the, the Christian life is full of paradox, and it's really challenging to understand what's going on in this world, but here's what we know, at least thus far in the book of Lamentations, is that God is a God who is good. He's with us and for us, and he intervenes on every single level of life, and may we let him, may we invite him, and may we rest in that. And so if you're, if you're in this place kind of spinning because you're trying to hold on to something to which you have no control over, I'm, the Lord is saying, you know, come to me and, and let me give you rest. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the words of lamentations and no matter how hard they may be, how difficult they, they may be to process, uh, I'm, I'm thankful that they're, they're, on, they're within and on the pages of Scripture so that we'd understand who you are from a 360-degree perspective. Where don't, we don't want just pieces of you and parts that are, are palpable. Um, we want all of you. And so, God, I, I pray not only that we would have all of you in the difficult, challenging pieces of the Scripture, but that we would see all of you and how you intervene into the lives of of humanity into our suffering and pain and devastation. I pray we'd see how you are so involved in that and in those aspects as well. And so God, as you um, continue to minister to our hearts, we pray that we would just continue to see you and really also help us to hang in there so we can get to chapter three. Because as we enter into chapter three, we know that hope is there on the horizon. Hope is always on the horizon. And so Lord, um, Maybe we have to squint. Maybe it's dark and we have to go with a real small glimmer of light. But Lord, lead us to trust you uh, further. Um, God, we we love you and we, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.